This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Once upon a time, the young Joshu asked his teacher, Nansen, what is the way? Nansen replied, your ordinary mind is the way. First, Joshu didn't know what to make of that answer and basically asked, well, how am I supposed to pursue that? And Nansen said, if you think you can pursue it, you've already missed it. What do you think you're going to pursue it with? At this point, Joshu had some realization. But I think the phrase ordinary mind has continued to confuse people over the years. The way it's too simple. I remember back when I was writing my first book, Ordinary Mind, I was going to try to explain some basic ideas of Buddhist, Buddhism to psychoanalysts and vice versa. I thought the challenge was to make it complicated enough that the psychoanalysts could understand it. If it was too simple, they wouldn't get it. They were basically convinced that the truth had to be difficult and complicated. And if it didn't arrive in that form, wouldn't pay any attention to it. That was something like Joshua's original dilemma. But even then, in that book, I remember quoting Aiken Roshi to the effect that we shouldn't confuse nonsense ordinary mind with our, you know, ordinary mind. Uh, what he really meant was the ordinary mind that we achieve after decades of practice where we've, through realization, arrived at this kind of natural simplicity, eating when we're hungry, sleeping when we're tired, not being deluded by conceptual thoughts or pulled this way and that by desire and attachment. And that ordinary mind, in that sense, referred to a kind of 
ideal simplicity that was the goal of practice, not the beginning of practice. And I'm afraid I, I think that that now is uh, really backwards. And I'm sorry that in that book, I seem to go along with that interpretation of it. I think our ordinary mind really is our ordinary mind. And that the way really is to experience the absolute, to experience the way in the midst of this mind that is our everyday mind of thought and feeling, anxiety and confusion and everything else. I think what happens in practice is that when we have some realization of that, and we really finally get around to some experience of this is actually it. That that whole inner dynamic of futile attempts at control and fixing and escaping, all that stuff starts to wind down. And it's because we see something like ordinary mind is the way, or that this moment just as it is, is all there is. It's the only place that we can find what we call the absolute. When we stop chasing it, that whole dynamic begins to settle down. And maybe after years and years, we can uh, approach what Aiken wanted to call ordinary mind, that, uh, that state of uh, simplicity. But that's it's not really the point to set that up as a goal. In a certain way, it doesn't make any difference at all to what extent that happens. The real point is to not be trying to climb out of our mind as it is right now. And I think that was Joko's lesson over and over again, when she wanted to have us stay with our resistance, our pain, our difficult thoughts and feelings. My point is really something that is even as familiar as this phrase of ordinary mind, I think still gives people a great deal of trouble after all these years, as does the very notion of mind, whether you capitalize it or not. Uh, in Western philosophy, which is something we're trying to explore and discuss a little bit in our reading of the Galen Strawson book. 
what he's doing is looking at other ways in which people have gotten themselves all entangled when they try to talk about what is mine. And he says sort of the, that the silliest idea ever is that mind doesn't exist, that consciousness doesn't exist. And admittedly, I think that's a pretty silly idea. I do think we could uh, bracket it with an equally silly idea that we tend to get in uh, Buddhist or spiritual circles, that only mind exists. And I think we need to talk a little bit about those sort of equal and opposite kinds of silliness and where they come from. The idea that consciousness doesn't exist you know, is something that he traces out of a kind of confusion about the nature of materialism and something about the history of uh, behavioral psychology in the 20th century. And it comes out of this, uh, a kind of scientism that says that the only things we really know, the only things that we can claim to actually exist are the things that are demonstrable and provable by science. And that these are statements about the stuff, the material stuff of the world. And that's stuff that we can sort of pin down and measure and quantify. And that all our real knowledge of the world is quantifiable. And when you adopt that kind of uh, notion that that's true knowledge, you've got a lot of trouble talking about consciousness because we don't seem to be able to measure it. There's no volume of it. There's no weight of it. There's no location for it. And so that there's a kind of uh, scientism that says consciousness is simply a kind of uh, surface phenomenon, really an illusion, in, uh, and that what's really going on are brain states. Brain states are things that we can uh, see and measure. And that science needs to occupy itself only with brains, not with minds. Okay. I would say so much for the worse for science, but it's saying this is going to be our restricted area in which we operate. The dilemma is when we say that anything that doesn't fit into that area must be unreal. And Strawson likes to point out that the paradox is that uh, the fact that the only thing we actually have any direct knowledge of is consciousness, is our own 
perception and sensation. All the supposed knowledge we have in science comes as data to us through our senses. But our senses are just part of consciousness. And if we don't think we understand anything about consciousness, it's hard to know how we are supposed to think our knowledge of the world is so reliable. This can lead us down a lot of complicated byways, and you can see in Descartes or Kant the idea taken to an extreme that the only thing we know are appearances. We only know the information of our senses, but maybe that's all wrong, or maybe that's really incomplete. Kant ends up with an idea that we only know how things appear to us. We can never know the thing in themselves. That's a whole another problem, which we won't go into right now. But that's one side of the uh, silliest idea uh, dilemma, the idea uh, that this consciousness isn't a real thing because it's not graspable as knowledge by science. And the other silly idea is that there's only mind, that the world is in some sense a manifestation of consciousness, a manifestation of big capital M mind. And this takes a lot of different forms in different cultures. But one way or another, it tends to boil down to a kind of flight from the reality of the impermanence of the material world. This is just something people just don't like <laughs> and they don't want to accept. And so we're trying to find some way to wiggle out of it. In Western religion and philosophy, this tended to become a variant of the mind-body problem or the soul and body problem. And it became a kind of fundamental tenet of Western religion that the body was mortal, but the soul, this carrier of our consciousness and maybe something else, that wasn't material. Material things all are compounded and fall apart and change. But the soul, because it's not material, gets to be immortal, gets to be unchanging. And boy, do people go for that idea. I think, however, it's... Uh, unfortunately, uh, boils down to a simple uh, flight from the reality of impermanence and death.
In Buddhism, we get a slightly different version that sometimes pops up as mind only. And it's hard to know what that is supposed to mean since as far as I can tell, consciousness or minds are uh, only found in this world as uh, uh, components of embodied creatures. Creatures have minds the way they have arms and legs and stomachs and hearts. Their mind, their consciousness at whatever level is part of the organism and its functioning or how it's all held together so it can function. And it always seems to be very peculiar to pick out one part and say it is primary, to say it's the real thing from which everything else derives. Uh, I was trying to think of some way to talk about that if you were going to pick some part other than the mind and make that primary. Well, what would you say? The body is really a finger and everything else is just a manifest manifestation of fingers. It's just in a certain way ludicrous to pick out a part from the whole and give it this kind of absolute primacy and say that before there was a body, there was fingers. Before there was a body, there was the mind. To me, that's pretty silly. But I think that there's a kind of background truth that people are trying to point to, and that that's that we're all part of some greater whole. That's fine. I would say we're all part of life. And that life manifests not just impermanence, but interdependence. Everything is defined in terms of its relations to everything else. So that there are no things in the sense of being absolutely definable separately, that any time you want to describe a thing, you have to start talking about it in its context. Things are all existent only in relation to other things. And when you start thinking that way, you realize that things have no particular boundaries, or you could draw the boundaries in a lot of different ways. So I think it's one way to talk about that is to, people sometimes use the metaphor of one body, 
We're all part of this one body. The things that we think of as separate actually have their existence and meaning only as part of the whole. And that's fine as long as you don't get literal about the word body. If you use life, that works pretty well, even if you capitalize it. Because then when we say we're all part of life, we know that life is just a word to describe everything that's happening. We don't think that life is something that exists in some way behind the curtain and that there's this um, vague life force or this vague capital B being like life or God that in somehow pre-exists stuff and the world and organisms. We just say it's life. It's what it's exactly what we see all around us. There's nothing behind the curtain. There's nothing hidden. But when you take the word life out and use the word mind and capitalize mind, instead of um, having a metaphor like one body, all of a sudden it gets weirdly reified into some kind of uh, ethereal substance. As if there's floating around in there and that everything else is sort of a precipitant of, from that. See, when we talk about one body, it's clearly a metaphor. But when people start talking about one mind, all of a sudden you're not sure if it's a metaphor anymore. What are they talking about? That's when I think it gets silly. So it brings us all the way back full circle to ordinary mind. It's nothing mysterious. It's what we already have. It's what we know better than anything else in the world. We don't need to make more of it than that. But we do need to be very careful about our temptation to make more of it than that. Our temptation to start using capital letters and italics and start thinking of it as something mysterious and other and beyond. And then, like Joshu, you're going to say, well, then how do I pursue that? How do I get from here to there? And as soon as you start thinking that way, you've already missed the mark.